Wow, so good. Well, as they, we talk about the children going to the next year, we are also coming to the end of December. In fact, we are in the last few days of 2023. You know, before you know it, in the blink of an eye, the year is already over. So, what are your plans for this end of the year? Holidays? If it's holidays, invite me along, okay? <laughs> well, I do dream. I do have this dream. Sometimes that, you know, after the service, I would come down and then someone from the congregation would come up to me and say, Pastor Samkyong, I've seen you slogging like a dog day and night, you know, having all these meetings and I just want to bless you. I'm going on the Mediterranean cruise and I want to bring you and your family along. All expenses paid. Pop! And then I wake up from my dream. <laughs> and then, you know, another funeral that I've got to do. Okay, fantasies aside, come on. What are your plans for the new year? Okay? Is it about um, uh, celebrating together with family and friends? I know all of you are winding down from work. Um, I'm not referring to those who are retired. You're probably winding up for more holidays, right? Isn't that true? Okay, but the more hardworking ones will be winding down. They want to spend some time with the family, spend some time with your friends, right? So that you can catch up and you probably reminisce over what has happened over the new year or rather over the past year. So I, I believe that all of us, young and old alike, will be generally looking forward to ushering in the new year and even considering the fruits of our labour that we have done for the past year. So quiet, Anna. Do you all chill out for the whole of last year or, your, or, or the whole of this year or do you all work hard? Work hard, right? Yeah, I'm sure you did. We must have said we are all good Christians, right? We work hard with all our heart for the Lord and not for human masters. You would say, right? Many of you would agree with me that you're looking forward to ending the year well, to be able to sit back, relax a bit, cut yourself some slack and enjoy the fruit of your labours. This would be expectation of many of us as we are nearing the last days of 2023. A buoyant outlook with a forecast of better days ahead. Wow, so nice to have that. Ah, but this is not so when we turn back to Scripture. Today I'm sharing with you from 2 Timothy 3 and this is the exact opposite of what Paul, the Apostle, Paul was speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy. The ambulance of ushering in the last days, looking towards the future, Paul has this to say. And it starts off this passage by the very first verse. He says this, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. There will be terrible times in the last days. What last days? Is Paul talking about? What do you think? For one thing, I'm very sure it wasn't about the last days of AD 64 or 65 when Paul was actually in prison when he wrote this. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this to Timothy while he was in prison. Was it the last days of the year when he wrote this personal letter to his spiritual son, Timothy? Young Pastor Tim, who is growing a church in Ephesus, this warning certainly wasn't for the end of AD 64 or 65. Or was Paul really concerned about his own last days? He's facing his own last days in the Roman prison where he was incarcerated. 
when he wrote the letter. It would come to you or I, if I were or you were in prison on the death row, what would you be thinking of? You'd probably be reminiscing upon my past glories or maybe mourning about the regrets. What put me in prison, you know? Oh dear, what is it? And then, but not Paul. Paul, if you look at his letters, all the letters, his prison letters, even those that he wrote in prison, the content of it, Paul wasn't concerned about his own welfare. He was more concerned about the welfare of the church, the welfare of God's people, that in all the churches is planted all around. And often he would say things like this, as in the letter he wrote to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he would say, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It doesn't matter to him if he perish, he perishes. But he's concerned about the people out there. Meaning that Christ's purpose for him, Paul, to continue living just for the sake of the churches and the people that he has encouraged so far. That was Paul referring to in the last days. But if the last days are for all of us, including Timothy, what are they? It's the last days of this era of grace. An era of grace. The grace period between the first coming of the Lord Jesus, the very first Christmas, to His return in the future, when He will come as King and Judge to rule in the millennial. Okay, I, I know this is a little bit too heavy for you all. It's too early on a Sunday morning. You might find it's a bit too theological. But, but you know what grace period is about, right? The grace period? Like, you know this, this strong conference or camp? When you sign up, when somebody signs up for a conference or camp, there is an early bird offer, isn't it? And when you take up the early bird offer, you pay less. That's grace extended to you. Or let, let, let's look at something far worse. Let's go back to the part where we were in the death row in prison, you know, and I pray that none of us would be there. But imagine if you were there and suddenly, while you're facing death in the face, you get a royal pardon, an amnesty. Wow, you're set free. You walk out of the prison, scot-free. That's super grace extended to you. That's grace. What we don't deserve. And we are living in this period of grace since Jesus came and died on the cross for all of us. And that's a special offer, like the early bird, like the prison amnesty. It's an offer you can't refuse. It also sounds like an offer that's too good to be through, right? Grace is actually getting what you do not deserve. Getting what you do not deserve, which is freedom from the shame, the humiliation, and the hurts that come with the sins. And these sins have been removed. Totally, and I mean totally and permanently removed by Jesus who gave us that offer. Many of us, I believe, I want to believe as the pastor of this wonderful church, as much as Pastor, young Pastor Timothy of the new growing church. You want to believe that this letter, when it's sent to all of the church members, when they read it, it is speaking to members that have taken up this offer of grace, right? That's why you're seated here on a Sunday morning as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Christians, right? Just in case you didn't realize that. Wait a minute. What is Pastor Samkyo talking about here? Before you get upset with me, but daring even to suggest that sitting among here may not even be Christians. 
or may not be genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of the fine print that the offer comes with. And this fine print is found throughout the Bible. It's all there. The fine print is there. Some of us got large print, but mine is certainly in fine print. But it's all there. Okay? And, and some of the fine prints are found in the opening five verses of 2 Timothy 3. Verse 1 says about there'll be terrible times and Paul's prophetic warning still rings as true today as it did 2,000 years ago. And you will soon see what I mean. Then verses 2 to 4. Ah, verses 2 to 4 sounds a little bit more familiar. It is actually like the rogues gallery. You know about the rogues gallery? Pastor, who spoke about two weeks ago? I know you all don't remember. Even as I finish this sermon, you probably won't remember the title, let alone two weeks ago. Pastor Chu spoke about what matters most two weeks ago and he was talking about the people and a group of them, the rogues gallery. Verses 2 to 4 is a repetition of that rogues gallery. It's about that, the people who are selfish, who are thinking mainly of their own wants, their own needs. They're lovers of themselves, of money, of pleasure. They're boastful, proud, unforgiving, unloving. They're unholy, taking nothing as sacred even. They're abusive. They are angry people, ungrateful and disobedient to parents. And the list goes on and on. But wait a minute. This list here, are they referring to Christians? Are they referring to people in the church? Are they referring to you and me? Surely Paul is not warning about people in the church, right? At least not in SIBKL. This is a wonderful church. We have all read the fine print. All of us, I presume, and I want to believe that. We have read the fine print when we took up the offer of grace. And all these fine print are exclusion clauses, right? Aren't they? The exclusion clauses. We are not supposed to bring this along with us when we took up the offer of grace. Perhaps maybe in a church further down the road, somewhere down in PGA, but not here in SIBKL. The Bible must be referring to people outside the church. Can't be referring to us. Can't be referring to people inside churches in the last days. But not really. Not really. The Bible is written for Christians. The Bible is essentially written for Christians. Not just for Christians to gloat over what's happening outside the church. 2 Timothy 3 serves as a warning for churchgoers, for you and I, from falling into complacency and going back to our old ways, even after taking up the offer of grace and reading the fine print, the Holy Scriptures. Of course, what terrible times that happen in the church also happens outside the church, more so in the Last days, as we approach the end of this era of grace, when the Lord Jesus will return again. Without having to look into visions and stars, and we can easily gather some evidences, some facts of these terrible times, the deepening darkness that's happening in the last days. I've been trained as a scientist, and I, I do a lot of stats too, and I, I, I love to show stats because stats don't lie. Well, sometimes they can, they manipulate, you know, somebody over there in the United States call it alternative truth. Well, but let me assure you, it is true unless spoken otherwise. And these stats spoke about what has happened. Some of it, the first one here is about the last 100 years. This is about the last 20 years. This is over 16 years 
And this is about what's happening at this point of time in 2020. You know, and all this over the last, the trend that you see in the last 20 to 100 years, you can see that the divorce rates, the LGBTQ influence among the teenagers, the abusive relationship in families, in, among the elderly even, are all on the rise. In the US, that's also representative of the rest of the world, the divorce rate has risen four times, four times in the last 100 years to between 15 to 20%. One in five, mostly due to unloving, sometimes abusive relationships among partners that want their own pleasure, that want to put their own interests first. Hmm, where did I hear that from? Near a home in Malaysia, domestic violence has doubled in the last 20 years. And I don't have to repeat the reasons why. You find them in the first five verses of 2 Timothy 3. Remember, what happens outside also happens inside here. In Netherlands and most part of Europe too, gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria means confusion. That, that, that a youth suddenly out of the blue wonders whether I'm a male or female. Although his sex has been assigned at birth, that's gender dysphoria. And normally, this gender dysphoria leads to transgenderism, sex change operations, and even LGBTQ practices at the very least. It has an exponential increase. I don't know whether you can see it because of the boulder there. I think it's anti-LGBT, but, but it covers that. You see that, that it was sort of plateau until about 2010, and then an upsurge. Why? Because in 2010, the Dutch government passed legislations supporting LGBTQ. It opened up a Pandora box. Then people started flocking, hey, I can do this. I have the freedom to do this. And there's upsurge more. The red line speaks of the women, the, the, the teenagers actually. The, the blue line speaks of male teenagers. And they begin to realize that, hey, I have this freedom. The very last bastion of protection against the sacredness, towards the sacredness of our sexual identity, the God-given sexual identity has been torn down by governments, by legislation. And then, not only that, the elderly are not spared in the UK. And it's not only the UK, it's Asia is fast catching up. And you find that up to 20% or one in five of the elderly are being affected. They are being emotionally abused. And 5% are even abandoned, physically left alone. Some even sexually abused. These are elderly yeah? and they are parents, grandparents. These are just some of the indication of the terrible times in the last days. Ah, but you say, you know, pastor, it's been happening. Paul said that 2,000 years ago. You know, in 2 Peter 3, Peter reminds us that God is not slow in understanding and in allowing His will to be done, except that God is merciful and is withholding His wrath so that none may perish and all may save, may be saved. And that is what God is withholding in His mercy the last days refers to this whole period of grace since the Lord Jesus came. And we are living in it. We are living in an era, not just only of grace, but an era of surrounding darkness too. How come we don't realize it? How come we don't realize it? Because the evil one is trying very hard to camouflage it, to lull us into complacency. And the church is not spared. The church is not spared. The church and the world are not mutually exclusive. 
Jesus tells us, He prays for us in John 17, that we are in the world, though not of the world. We are not separated from the world. What happens is the world sometimes surreptitiously creeps into the church, into our lives. Now, this is not a bleak picture that Apostle Paul is painting just to discourage a church. No, not at all. It's the Holy Spirit ever-relevant warning against complacency. The Holy Spirit is speaking through the Scripture, telling us, don't be complacent. The world is not outside the doors of the church. The world sometimes can come in. And I want to encourage you, I really want to encourage you that for your own sake, for your family's sake, for your children's sake, that you are modeling as parents, as grandparents, for your children, for your children's sake, and even for the sake of the church, the community of God's people, brothers and sisters that are in here, wake up. Wake up to reality and take stock of your stand before the Lord. And not only that, when you realize it, take a corrective measure. Take a corrective measure. Please don't one day wake up with the divorce on the cards. Or to your children, one day when they grow up, they dabble in LGBTQ or be involved in an abusive or toxic relationship with your children, with your siblings, with your friends, or still with your parents. Remember the fifth commandment. It speaks of honouring our parents. Don't end up hearing the Lord saying to you one day when you meet Him face to face, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father, Jesus said, will enter. How then must we live? How then must we live? We ought to take ownership of ourselves, our families, our church, from giving in to the world's influences. Men who are seated here, you are the spiritual head of the household. Take charge. Take charge, not just over everything, not, not just lord it over everybody, but take charge of the spiritual authority in your family. Mothers, you are the nurturing one that keeps the family together, that plays a very important role in guiding the children too. I'm not trying to stereotype anybody here, but these are roles that the Bible has taught us about. Of course, there's overlap and there's mixing of it, but these are the main roles that the Lord the women's role is not any less than the men. They are equal, for God took Eve out of the side of the ribs. They were meant to be equal, but they have separate roles. And they are meant to be the nurturing role, to be able to hold the family together. Men, women, take charge, take ownership. And that can only be done through genuine submission to Christ. Not just through an eye wash, a mere church attendance on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, for show only. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to some, I'm not speaking to all of you. The Lord also warns against those who holds the form of godliness but denies the power of it. Oh, let it not be us. Let it not be us. Let it not be this church, Lord. We also ought to model our submission to Christ, the living hope for a world outside there that is without hope and that is without purpose. And you need to see that. Let the scales drop from our eyes because we are living in the last days and there are terrible times. 
Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we cancel all Christmas celebrations from now on, no New Year watch night service. No, we don't mean that. But beyond that, we need to see what's happening. There's a world crying out there. There's a world crying out there. I agree with you, it's not easy to lead a life of complete submission to the Lord Jesus. And if you've already accomplished it, let me tell you, it's already time for you to go home. You're ready for your room in your father's house. How many of you are ready to go home to the Lord? <laughs> Very few hands here. This morning, half the hall put up their hands. I, I think probably they are, they are all one step in heaven's door already. So they're all ready to go home. But, but, but I understand where they are coming from because they have lived a life of honouring the Lord and they know that the Lord will welcome them home. I, I know, I, I don't mean that you don't live a life honouring the Lord, but you all are still young, so you thought that maybe a lot of things ahead of you. But what is important is not the length of time, it's how you live your life. How then must we live? Because if you already complete our assignment, our mission, the Lord will just call us home. Pop! The moment you receive the Lord, there's no need for us to be here. There's no need for us to be here. We just go home to the Lord. They may enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. But the Lord still has a mission, an assignment for each one of you to be here, to complete that assignment. So I'm so glad there are so few hands that have been raised. At least I don't have to do any more homegoing services than I already have. But to continue us on, in this earthbound journey, the Bible, through 2 Timothy 3, uses three contrasting outcomes. You choose, you decide. Would you rather, would you rather love God instead of loving self? That's the first five verses. And then would you rather live like Paul, the Apostle Paul, or be deceived by imposters? And the third choice that you would be asked, a challenge to make, would you rather lean on Scripture or go on to following false teachings? It sounds very much like an icebreaker game, right? Would you rather, and then half the church move over to one side, and then would you rather do this, and then the other half go over to the other side? No, 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 I'm not going to make you do that. But it's a decision that each one of us got to make. It's an individual decision. And many times, this decision covers your family, your friends, your ministry, your cell, your workplace. The first one is loving God instead of loving yourself alone. It's first and foremost, that's so important. It, it's also the hardest to do. Loving God is not easy. You can see this exaltation everywhere to remind us. You see it on the billboards, you see it on the e-flyers, on posters, and even early morning social media messages. Good morning, God loves you, you know. Do you love your neighbour? You see that even in your mobile devices. Practically, in every nation, people want and desire to love God, except the communist countries which they don't believe in God and God has always constantly become a nuisance in the agenda to them. They think God as a nuisance. But God cannot be denied wherever. Every nation still wants to honour God. And every faith too, every adherent of a faith would try to express the love for God. But the most glaring and obvious mistake every religion except one makes is to do the utmost to display the affection for God through rituals, through sacrifices and adherences, following what the holy book 
Even the Bible is described as a holy book. But there are many other holy books outside there. So they think loving God is by following commandments, precepts, ordinances. Yes, obedience is mandatory. But when done the wrong way, it doesn't bring us one step nearer to loving God. Try as they might to love God through human efforts. Each one fails terribly and contributes unerringly towards the terrible times that's mentioned in the last days. Also, contributing to the characters of the rogue gallery in verses 2 to 4. Many want to love God and they fail, including Christians. I'm sure you're thinking your mind now. So, pastor, how, huh? how do you love God at the end of it? You want to know? So quiet. I don't think you want to know. Lah. Are you interested in loving God? You are. Let me tell you. Loving God remains a religion of observances and obedience. It's a form of godliness, but denying the power of it until, until it becomes a relationship. Let me repeat that. Loving God remains a religion of obeying laws and commands until it becomes a relationship. In fact, we are warned to have nothing to do with the people that practice it because those that do this type of loving God tend to influence others in doing the same. That's why Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with them. Those that have the form of godliness but denies the power of it. A genuine love for God a genuine love for God is not any relationship that's just generated from human sentiments or even a perception of God. It has to stem, first of all, from a basic understanding and accepting that we cannot love God if we did not initiate the move in making His love known to us. God has to lavish and pour forth His love onto us. Why? Because God is love. Romans 5.8 makes it very clear by announcing that God demonstrates His very own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that because we love God first, we want to love God so God, so pitiful, yala, I love you in return. No, God knew that we are unable to love Him. And that's why He lavishly pours out His love onto us. And our love for God is simply evoking a response to God's overtures of love, His lavish overtures of love when He gave His only begotten Son to hang upon the cross for you and me. What greater manifestation of love is there than God giving His all that He who gave His Son, would He further withhold anything else from us if He gave His Son upon the cross? That's the crucial difference between loving God genuinely as a Christian and adherence from other faith trying to love God. A Christian love for God has to be a response of gratitude to a greater love that's been invested into you and I from a loving God. Not of our own doing. All other faiths are attempt to love God in return for promises of blessings, favours. When the promises and blessings end, the love ends. So having a form of godliness but denying the power of it will often not be a pretension but instead a misconception of how a loving God, God Almighty, and yet emptied Himself of everything to take on the form of man 
to be one of us, not only man, but a born servant, a man servant, and finally to die on the cross for us, of giving himself for us. Hence, this misconception, we do not fully grasp it. We miss the mark of responding in love to him when we don't understand it, when we don't accept it fully into our lives. Then you might ask one more question, Pastor. If this is so, at the end of the day, how to love God more? Let me ask you this in return before I answer that. Do you think you can love God more through God lavishing His blessings on you? Or do you think you can love God more when He leads us through our sufferings? Blessings, we love God more. All through sufferings, when He leads us through, we love God more. It's easy to say that we love God more through blessings. Oh God, thank you so much. You blessed me with a new car, new house, new, new job, new wife, new, new children. Okay, new children. But thank you, Lord. But then we humans have very poor memories. When the children grow up and they break things around the house, when the cars start breaking down, when a lot of things, you tend to forget that it was God who gave that. And when He brings us through sufferings, when God brings us through suffering, be it big or small, we can learn to be more thankful, to endure this and be thankful. And then, through that, the grinding of ourselves, the transformation, the divine transformation happens. We begin to be more thankful and begin to understand God's love for us and we will develop a genuine love for Him. So if you are going through a suffering right now, Dear brother, dear sister, take heart. God is with you through this. He's not a God who abandons His people, His children, during times of suffering. I always hold my favorite verse, Romans 8, 28. God works all things for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Because our finite eyes don't allow us to see beyond the suffering we're experiencing. There's an apologist by the name of Suresh. He has passed away due to cancer in very young age. When he went through that suffering, he came to Malaysia in one of his last overseas trips and he spoke about the ordeal that he went through. And someone asked him, where is God in the midst of your suffering? And he has this answer. You know, a woman when in labour, you experience great pain. I didn't give the answer, he did. He wasn't a gynecologist. But a woman in labor experiences great pain. And she endures it, endures it, because she knows that at the end of it, there will be a great joy with a gush. The baby will be delivered. And that is what God does when He brings you through it. That He endured it. And that is what he, His perception of God is. That when He went through that suffering, God has a great joy for him at the end of it all. Today, he's home with the Lord. And that was also largely what Paul went through. And that brings me to the next choice that's placed before us. The second choice is, are we going to live like Paul or be deceived by imposters? We know from both scripture and historical records that Paul gave up a very lucrative and prestigious religious uh, lifestyle in order to be able to fulfill God's purpose for him. 
A large part of Paul's life, after his encounter with Jesus, involved enduring severe hardships and imprisonment. And it was at the tail end, very tail end of his prison stay that Paul possibly led to his execution that he penned these very personal words to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 11 says this, You, you Timothy, however, know all about my teaching and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You, you Timothy, know my faith, my patience, my love and my endurance. And again, you, you, you know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, in Iconium, and in Lystra. But the Lord, the Lord rescued me from all of this. It was a very warm appeal to Timothy, like from a father to a son. The emphasis on the word you each time reminded Timothy what he has seen for himself. Timothy was with Paul. He ministered to Paul. He's seen with his very own eyes Paul's sufferings. He must have wondered, how can this man take so much and yet be filled with such joy? You know, Timothy being young has not gone through the, sw- the sour, sweet, bitter and spiciness of life. We Chinese call it Xin Tim Fu Lat. He has not gone through it before, but, but he has seen someone like Paul going through it. And he knows that suffering and persecution is very real. But, but what is even more real is God in the presence of Paul and in Paul's life. God is very real and is not contradictory to suffering. And then Timothy fully understands what Paul was talking about in the very next verse, in verse 12. Paul says this, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will suffer persecution. How about you? Do you appreciate that the godly life is not one molded after blessings and just experiences of God's goodness without suffering and persecution? It's not to say that now after the service you should go out and start looking for persecution and suffering. I'm not going to bail you out of jail, okay? It is not just that, but it does transform you to make you godly make you godly. It is actually the impartation of a very thankful and a contented attitude through all the circumstances. Paul elsewhere, when he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, says this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through Him who gives me strength. And it's mostly through suffering that the Holy Spirit is able to forge the most powerful godly weapon, praise and worship in every situation. Against that, the evil one has no defence. He has no defence. So we should thank God for our worship team. We should thank God for the times that you worship on your own. Every time you worship, Satan takes one step back from your presence. Because God's presence is ushered into your life. I know of this young couple, young adult couple, who has been our PMC counsellors. A young wife and husband, a mother of a child, and she has been stricken with late-stage cancer. And she has undergone surgeries, several surgeries, and even undergone chemotherapy. And I believe currently she's undergoing the third one. 
each episode being more painful and harder to endure than the previous. But you know what's the amazing thing? They both hardly complain at all. Hardly complain at all. And that makes me shameful to hear so many of our elderly members here complaining about here and there about little things. You know, the LED too bright, la, the sound system too loud, la, the, the, the aircon too cold. La. I really hope they won't be too late to enter heaven before the gates close. But coming back to this young couple, they continue to choose serving in church in no small capacity. You can see them in the church and serving too, even when they're not well. And they continue to trust that Jesus will see them through, even encouraging the cell to pray along with them. And each time they see a small improvement, they will treat the cell to a meal, a Thanksgiving meal. Come on, how many can do that? Let's praise Jesus for this couple. What an encouragement coming from this young, godly couple. I actually asked for permission to tell the names. They are seated here even in this sanctuary today. And they are real people. You know, God raises such strong people in His church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In contrast, don't be deceived by imposters. They even masquerade as teachers. I hope I'm not one of them. <laughs> Presumably Christians too, that oppose the truth. And they might flourish for a while, pandering to itchy ears. You know, they will tell you things they want to hear and people will flock to hear them. But God will turn the tables on them eventually. Trust that God will do that. And our roles, our roles is just to keep our eyes to be focused on the Lord Jesus while encouraging those around us, our family, our cell, ministry, members, friends, to do the same. So how do we ensure that Jesus stays in focus all the time? By going on to the third point, leaning on Scripture and not following false teachings. We live in a postmodern era of deepening darkness where opposition to the truth is very common and where sentiments prevail, become the main feature and the truth goes to the back burner. This poses a major challenge to godly Christians who are also called people of the book. You're called people of the book. The book being the Bible and it's inerrant. And as much as it happens in the days of Timothy, proclaiming the truth has become increasingly difficult down the timeline until now. When the evil one cannot confront the truth directly, he will turn it and circumvent the truth by turning it into grey areas, creating confusion and complacency. Or, if he can't do that, he will create divisions by causing differing opinions. These are his two major tricks that he does that. And what he does are practically seen around us. In the former, the gospels of prosperity or blessings and the preaching of hyper-grace theology abounds around us with no suffering, no persecution, being mentioned as being important in a Christian walk. And this leads to complacency. When the rubber hits the road, many fall away. Many fall away when the rubber hits the road. But in the latter, a deep division of opinions regarding important issues. Sometimes like, for example, Black Lives Matter. I'm not very sure whether Black Lives Matter here, but, but we in Malaysia itself face racism. We face racism. When opinions like this, people tend to take sides not only this about Black Lives Matter or racism, gender fluidity will also cause people to take sides. Even the current Israeli-Hamas war, people begin to take sides. 
And when people take sides, nations, even churches, will be divided down the centre. At the end of the day, it's only the evil one that will triumph when divisions happen. So be on your guard against forming extreme opinions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't form opinions, but don't go out to the street and say, yes, I'm on this side, I'm on this real side, I don't know, I'm on the Hamas side, I'm on the Palestinian side, the poor people. Don't go out on the streets in extreme opinions. Yes, do form opinions, pray about them, support them if you want to provide aid. But these extreme opinions lead to divisions. Also be on the guard against imposters and teachers that oppose the truth, have nothing to do with them because they have nothing to do with making Jesus being the center of our focus. Instead, always revert back to Scripture for guidance when in question. God, Paul gives godly advice in 2 Timothy verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15. He speaks to uh, Timothy once again, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, as a father continues to encourage his beloved son, Paul continues to remind Timothy that even from young, you have learned, you have become convinced and you know the lives of those whom you have learned from. Who was he referring to? He was referring to Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, that from young, he has watched them and together, Paul, Eunice, Lois, they have actually been the mentors, the spiritual mentors in guiding Timothy so that when he grows up, he's wise unto salvation. Godly wisdom comes in. It's a matter of word relied upon and word applied. They were the cheerleaders. They were the spiritual mentors. His ibu and bapa in faith that guided his spiritual journey. Do you have one? Do you have a spiritual mentor? We all need to have a spiritual mentor in one form or another. When I first became a Christian, I didn't have a spiritual mentor or a spiritual father. Though the elder in my church were the closest to being one. But I was an avid reader. I love reading. And I love the writings from the many of my book mentors. Book mentors. People that were in the past and all their writings were contained in books and they guided, of course, with the help, great help from the Holy Spirit. They spoke to me even from the past. Those days, they still have books, you know, the little square things that have pages in it where many trees were killed in order to produce them. Nowadays, we are more kind to trees. We have electronic devices, right? And we put the trees aside, we save the trees, but then we forget that we poison the trees with the batteries that degenerate when these electronic devices, many, many years later, are thrown to the ground. They are not degradable. But anyway, the writing of these books always point back to the center focus. Jesus, Jesus, and I had to cross-reference always to the Bible. Lean on Scripture. Lean on Scripture. Scripture always worked in tandem with men and women God appointed through times and seasons to enhance the efficacy of His work. From a worldly crew of 12 that became the apostles to turn an upside-down world right-side up, the Word of God continued to spread far and wide. There were the patriarchs, the fathers of the early church, like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Augustine of Hippo, and then the men and women of God, like Teresa of Avila, 
Luther, Martin Luther, Calvin, John Calvin, Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley is the wife of John Wesley, who started the denomination, the Methodists. And Esther Ankim. Esther Ankim is a Korean lady. She wrote her life in an autobiography called If I Perish, I Perish. You probably may have heard of the book. She's the author of the book. She's a real person. Not only amongst Caucasians, but among Asians. Throughout the world, God has been raising men and women to spread the good work that's associated with God's Word. Right now, towards the end of the last days, in the present age of grace. It's a rich and long legacy of being used by God's Word and to use God's Word to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture has a very powerful effect on humankind when it was carried upon the shoulders of giants that were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yours could be the next pair of shoulders that God will use to even carry His Word further. Amen? Hallelujah. But before I close, I'm going to tell you about these two men that the Lord has used mightily to influence many parts of the world with His Word. They are C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. Have you heard of them before? Lord of the Rings? Narnia? Right, okay. When I mention the names, you don't see the heard. You probably don't read their books, huh? but you watch the movies, right? So we're old church of moviegoers, pastor. Huh? Next time, we should produce a movie <laughs> that tells about the Lord Jesus. Well, they, they met as fellow professors in Oxford. One was a devout atheist and the other a Catholic, but they had a common interest in literature. And they would meet regularly to discuss ideas. And before long, they started debating the Bible. They started talking about Bible. To, cut, to make a short story long, okay, Tolkien became more outspoken as a Catholic. And Lewis, despite his staunch disbelief in Christianity, eventually became a Christian and a very fervent Christian. He was convicted by the Holy Spirit and became a born-again Christian. And together, they continued to meet regularly in a group called the Inklings. And it helped each other to spur each other to greater heights to have Christian influence in literature. Like how iron sharpens iron. C.S. Lewis went on to write more than 30 books that are translated into over 30 languages all around the world, including the famous Narnia series that's made into movies. Remember Aslan the Tiger? It's a caricature of the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah. All of them had a Christian theme and they encouraged millions around the world. His insight into faith, into suffering, and into how God has a purpose in individual lives was just amazing. I just want to take this quote for you to just ponder for a while. C.S. Lewis wrote this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it, everything else is clear. I hold it there for a while. Let it sink in. Tolkien also wrote and completed 45 books. Many of them pertain to the Lord of the Rings series. You all know the Lord of the Rings, right? Many of you may have seen the movies. They were made into these successful movies that has a couch Christian theme or so. Remember the return of the king? It actually refers to the Lord Jesus coming back one day. And it brings about a victory when the enemy was about to overwhelm the world in the dark, terrible times when we thought that victory is not within grasp. The king will return. And because these movies were made in nations, in homes that were 
that were an obstruction, that were close to the gospel. These movies went into these homes, went into these lives, went into these countries. Millions of them. Isn't it amazing how God just used two nerdy academics, one an atheist, the other a Catholic, to impact millions around the world using literature based on Scripture. Let's give praise to Jesus for that. That's a marvellous thing that the Lord is doing in our world. So as much as Paul is telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and I want to encourage you to take this verse to heart. I did when I was in Sunday school. He says this, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That Scripture is used powerfully in every ways imaginable, creative ways that God will use it to further the word and the gospel of good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will Jesus use next to forward His word and His kingdom? Will you or you be the next Lewis or Tolkien? Perhaps the digital version of it, but who knows? But so, in closing, when the days get darker, how can we dispel the darkness? How can we dispel the darkness? You know, I chose this picture because it reminds me of the time I climbed up to Mount Kinabalu. You know, you climb up to Mount Kinabalu at 3 o'clock in the morning, complete darkness, complete darkness. And then you reach there about 5 o'clock and you begin to see this. What we call a crack of dawn. One line of light and that grows wider and wider and wider. Before you know it, the whole sky is filled with light. Darkness can only be dispelled by light. We'll look into how we should not fall into complacency, how, how we should renew our submission unto the Lord. We also look into the choices we have to make between loving God and loving self. Also, we look like we should live like Paul and not follow after imposters, as well as how to lean on God's word versus falling after false teachings. Each decision, if you do that, is a right decision in the right direction and it has its merits. But each is like, each is like a pinpoint of light in the darkness. And it pushes back the darkness like the crack of light at dawn. It pushes back the darkness. After all, darkness cannot quench the light that we have. While we introduce the light that can dispel the darkness of these terrible times of the last days. These last days speak of a deepening darkness. Darkness of what? Darkness of the mind, of the heart, of conscience, of character. Who or what can really bring about a transformation, a true transformation of this darkness, a divine transaction? Let me put it to you. It's none other than the Word of God that became flesh and dwelled amongst us, giving us life and light. We sung about it just now. It's the same Word of God that is God breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was, God, was with God and the Word was God. And when it's God brief, it equips the servant of God for every good work and which you heard about, which you see testified even amongst our church members itself. The one who can do that is none other, none other 
than the Lord Jesus Christ. It came 2,000 years ago to the very first Christmas. We are coming into the season where it's Christmas again. Let this Christmas be a different one. Let us wake up from our slumber and to know that there is a very dark world out there, a deepening darkness, and as dark as it is, all the more, the Lord Jesus will shine brighter. He brings the light that shines ever so brightly in this deep dark world of ours. He's the light of the world. So as we go into this Christmas week, and I would encourage all of us to spend some time reflecting that take cognizance of the fact that Jesus is God incarnate. And to love God is to renew our covenant once again with Him, to love Him with all our hearts, our soul, our mind and our strength and also to love our neighbours as ourselves. And as we imitate Paul, or in our present day and age, our spiritual mentor, whoever the spiritual mentor is, bear in mind that they in turn imitate Christ. And I want to take this opportunity, opportunity to honour our spiritual mentors of the house, my spiritual mentor since I came to SIBKL because I never had a spiritual mentor before I came to SIBKL, Pastor Chu and Lee Chu. Let's give God honour as much as we honour our pastors. Be as much as we desire to see Christ, they too imitate Christ as we imitate the spiritual mentors. Because Christ is in the centre, right in the centre of everything. Even, even if you are in the midst of suffering, in the centre of everything. Come before Jesus at the altar, which will be open afterwards. And let Him see you through this season that you are in. Take cognizance too that the Word of God is ever living and ever transforming. It changes us, transforms us. Every time you open the pages of the Bible, there's a divine transaction. Jesus is the Word that speaks the fullness of life into you. If you have a need of anything, bring it before God. Bring it before God. But before we ask the Lord Jesus of any of this, let's worship Him again. With thankfulness in our hearts, with the desire to remember of what He has done for us, of His coming into this world for us to live in.